The grand epic of the Exodus is not just ancient history. It's our story, too. We also are the children of Abraham, and each of us has our own Egypt that enslaves us, and our own promised land where we long to be. And along the way, where is our Moses to open up our Red Sea? And where do we see God in our story? These are the big questions that emerge in this narrative. In the next few minutes, let's take a closer look to see what it tells us about our own story. The story begins in Egypt, when the family of Jacob grew to be the great nation that God had promised to Abraham, the nation that will bless all the peoples of the earth. Through them, all humanity can learn what it means to be created in the image of God and learn the name of the God who created them. Now, 400 years later, God isn't named or seen, but the presence of the life-giving God is felt in the pulsing of new life. But suddenly, things change when a new Pharaoh comes to power, one who didn't know Joseph, or the God of Joseph. And when we lose sight of God, we lose sight of humanity too. For the king, the Israelites are too numerous and a threat that must be controlled. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, he says. And Egypt is no longer a place of refuge. It's now a place of oppression. Life that can't be controlled must be destroyed. And the battle lines are drawn between the death-dealing Pharaoh and the God of life. The Pharaoh can't win. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Israel finds itself serving not the life-giving God of their ancestors, but the death-dealing Pharaoh. It's not service freely given, but forced service, bitter service. Where is God during this time? That God is with us in good times is quite easy to believe. But in the depths of oppression, illness, death, where is God then? God's people have often experienced the distance of God. David prays, do not hide your face from me. God has promised Abraham and Jacob and now us that I am with you always. But that doesn't mean we, can't always, we can always sense his presence. It certainly doesn't mean that hard times can't befall us. And hard times are not the work of God. He did not plan slavery for his people. The world has different powers that rule over it, and the transition from one ruler to another can bring profound changes in people's lives. We have to be careful when talking about God's plan for our lives, as if everything that happens to us is God's will. He plans for nothing but good, but evil befalls us unplanned and unexplained. Corrupt and capricious forces are at work. Forces of nature sometimes run amok. 
we can thank God for the good in our lives. But then when we see others going through hard times, we are called to ally ourselves with God to comfort and assist them. Whether we find ourselves in good times or in bad, the promise of God never changes. He will never leave us alone. Through two stories, we see God at work, preserving the lives of his people by working through unlikely allies. God seems to enjoy flummoxing the plans of the shrewd powers of the earth with the lowest of the low and the weakest of the weak. The king calls two Hebrew midwives and tells them to kill all the baby boys at birth. But he did not imagine this. The midwives did not fear the king. They feared God. And they find themselves the champions of God in a face-off between the God of life and the life-destroying Pharaoh. It's a microcosm of the choices that God's people will always have to face. Whom do we serve? God or Baal? God or the temptations of worldly power? And where is God, by the way? Not a word from him for 400 years. But the boys lived. The people thrived. The nation is still growing in numbers that terrify the Pharaoh. So God rewards the midwives, Shifra and Pua, for their quick wit and courage in outwitting the Pharaoh. In an early demonstration of civil disobedience, they obey the higher laws of the God who preserves life rather than the nameless king who ruled over them. For the first time, we see God in action. Their names are preserved for all of history. Their names spoken today in Boulder, Colorado. And he gives them families and a name preserved in Israel. Do they see God's hand in this? Perhaps not. But the narrator is cluing us in that he is there. And the great king's campaign against babies intensifies by commanding all Egyptians to throw the baby boys into the Nile. But he again is facing off with the creator who now turns to three women to be his hands and feet in saving the child who will lead Israel out of Egypt. Again, unlikely choices. Two slave women and one pagan princess. One by one, these three women turn the king's shrewd plan upside down and inside out. Where is God? But working in the wisdom of the mother and the quick wit of the sister, and above all in the pagan princess, who clearly reflects the image of God, in her compassion for the slave child that falls into her hands and the courage to stand up against her father's deadly edict to save him. Through her, God works to save and protect and educate the one who will lead Israel out of Egypt. The narrator passes over those days in the palace and takes us to one day, 
after Moses had grown up. He suddenly, as if by impulse, went out to his people and saw their forced labor. I wonder if this might not be the beginning of God's call to Moses. Go out and see for yourself what slavery looks like, feels like, smells like. You've never been a slave. Moses saw firsthand one of his kinsfolk being beaten by an Egyptian overlord, and it was more than he could stand. Moses has a strong sense of justice, and he jumps into action, but not until he looks this way and that to make sure no one is looking as he kills the Egyptian. But he soon finds that his crime is known. His identity is known. The Pharaoh is out for blood, and Moses flees for his life. Now, where is God in this? The impulse to save his people might well have come from God. But how is he to do that? He and God have not talked this over. Moses just jumps ahead, meeting an act of brutality with another act of brutality. He might have thought of himself as the Hebrew Spartacus rising up with the slaves to destroy their masters. But that's not what God has in mind. God needs to have a long talk with Moses. Perhaps the exodus is delayed for another 40 years while God takes this fugitive to his classroom in the desert for some remedial education. As their potential deliverer runs to safety, the narrator tells us that the people groaned under their slavery and cried out. It doesn't say they cried out to God, but God heard them. And he remembered his covenant, and he looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. We learn a lot about God here. He hears the voice of the oppressed, whether they're crying to him or not. He sees them and takes notice of them. He is on their side. Israel's days of slavery in Egypt will shape their identity as God's people. Throughout their history, God will remind them, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. How are they to do that? By caring for the poor the powerless, the widows and orphans, the strangers in your midst. See their plight as God saw yours because you were slaves in Egypt. It will be their mark as the children of God, the image of God in them to care for the oppressed because they remember the God who was with them in Egypt. And when they remember when we remember, justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. But Moses is not in Egypt. He has fled to Midian, a place where people know something of God, a place where he can find safety and a home, and a vast desert where God has been known to hold court. For 40 years, Moses studies in God's Leadership Academy as a shepherd. The ancient Near East often referred to their kings and chiefs as shepherds of the people, a title that God himself claims 
God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. This is the image of God that Moses must now emulate. The divine shepherd himself will lead his children home, but he will do it through Moses. The desert has been called the furnace of transformation. Moses must have thought he had lost the whole world when he fled from Egypt. All the luxury and honor due to a prince gone in an instant. After failing miserably to deliver one Israelite from oppression, he settles into a life of feeding and watering his flock. I wonder if Moses ever thought of these years as wasted years, the best years of his life just gone to the sheep. How could he know that God is preparing him to do the very work that God himself is doing? After 40 years, God summons him to the divine presence. And it's a different man who enters into this one-on-one -on -one with God. Do you recognize yourself in this story? Have you ever spent time in a mini desert stuck between nothing and nothing and wondering if anything is ahead? Sometimes we need a little reorientation. Time with God to see things more clearly. The desert scene, even if it is isolating in our own homes, provides a place of purification. To be emptied of old ways of thinking and transformed into the newness of life that God has for us. We let go of the values of Egypt and learn what God thinks is important. Now, as we study this conversation, we can see something of how God relates to his human partners in furthering his kingdom. We can imagine what kind of conversation he might like to have with us. How is the Almighty going to approach his mortal ser servant after a very long silence between them? He has been hidden in the story so far, but has revealed some aspects of his character as the God of life and life preservation, as a God who works through the lowliest of human agencies and through people who may not even know he exists, and a God who cares about justice, justice for the oppressed. And now this God is going to make his presence on earth known. And he wants Moses to help him. To Moses, it's a prophetic call. God plans this first meeting very carefully. But he waits until Moses comes to him. He attracts his attention to the flames of fire burning inside a bush, but not consuming it. It's not a burning bush. Moses is curious enough to come closer to see what this wonder is all about. Imagine what he would have missed if he hadn't followed the pull of his curiosity. 
Think of the ways God appeals to you and to me to lure us into a conversation with him. What attracts you to God? What would you like to talk about? Moses comes close enough for God to speak to him and for Moses to speak back. Now, communication is possible. They don't discuss burning bushes. God seems to favor fire as a manifestation of his presence. God will later appear in flames of fire at Sinai. He will lead Israel in a pillar of fire. But now his first appearance in fire captures the mystery and power and beauty of divine presence. Moses can't resist. What follows is the beginning of a lifelong conversation. The encounter takes place in the wilderness. God has no need of temples or altars. This is God and Moses, surrounded by sheep. God is the first to speak, to invite Moses into conversation. He simply calls Moses' name. He calls us by name, too. Moses, Moses, here I am. The conversation is underway. Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This little spot of nowhere becomes sacred space when God arrives. He has come down and establishes his presence on the earth in this one bush. Who is speaking but God? I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. If God has hidden his face from his people, he is now blazing in mysterious glory. And it's Moses who hides his face from God. God is initiating a conversation with his people that hasn't occurred for over 400 years. How do you start a conversation after 400 years of silence? You just may have to introduce yourself. The voice will no longer be familiar. And that's what God does. Remember the God of your ancestors. That's me. I'm talking to you now. God has descended from heaven to the earth to talk with us. Pay attention. He wants something from us. God is always present, but sometimes the long silence is more than he can bear. And he will throw out to us a lure of something beautiful and mysterious to bring us to him. And if our curiosity takes us to him, even if we are breaking a 400-year silence, a great conversation just might ensue. You can never be sure. Sometimes his face is hidden. Sometimes our face is hidden. But he is always there. And the ground in your bedroom or living room or wherever you seek him is holy ground. So why has he come down? Why now? God has seen the misery of his people. 
He has heard their cries. He knows their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the second of his twofold promise to Abraham. In Egypt, Israel has grown to be a great nation, and now God is ready to take them back to the land he had promised Abraham. But God isn't going to accomplish this by divine fiat. He is going to work through Moses. And in the form of an invitation, he says, So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people the Israelites, out of Egypt. Every word should appeal to Moses. It's an invitation from God, who can resist that, to go back to Egypt, the land he had grown up in, to Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh, but part of the family of his youth, for the adventure of taking all his people back home not by his former rash violence, but by following the leadership of the divine shepherd. God waits patiently for Moses to agree. Some form of, yes, Lord, let it be according to your will would be appropriate. But Moses has his own ideas and responds with an argument. First, he challenges God's choice of a leader. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? There must be better choices. I'm a shepherd, not metaphorically, literally. You can hear them bleeding. It may sound a bit like humility, but he really is telling God he doesn't know what he's doing. But God offers his reassurance. I be with you. What more assurance could one hope for than the presence of God? And you will bring them back right here to this spot to worship me, right here. You can just hear God's enthusiasm. But Moses is thinking through the problems this would present him. If I start telling people God has sent me, God has told me, they might ask a few questions like, oh yeah? What's his name? What do I tell them? I don't know your name. Nobody knows your name. The gods of the ancient Near East were often reluctant to reveal their names, lest people use it to manipulate them like a magic charm. Moses is asking some very personal and impertinent questions, but God answers him immediately and fully. It's because Moses was pushy enough to ask impertinent questions that we know the name of God. I am who I am. That is how you shall answer them when they ask. I am has sent me to you, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. And God continues, this is my name forever and this my title for all generations. He may tell Moses his name, but it's still a mystery. I am who I am, always mysterious. We can't think for a moment 
we have God all figured out. What God reveals at the burning bush is just the beginning of our understanding of God that continues with the prophets and on into the testimony of Jesus who invites us to call him Abba, Father. Go, God says, go. Assemble the elders and tell them who sent you and why. And he writes out the entire speech for Moses to give them. And he plans out the strategy. It is clear and layered. Go to the elders first, and then you and the elders will go to the king and tell him that I am calling the Israelites out for a three days journey to worship me. But that won't work. The king won't let you go. So I will stretch out my hand with mighty wonders and the king will then let you go. And all the people of Egypt will be so impressed with you that they will fill your hands with great wealth as you leave. There, that's your speech. That's the plan. Beginning to end, Moses, let's go. But Moses still objects. There's a lot of assumptions here, Lord. What if the elders don't believe me? What if they say the Lord did not appear to you? That is not outside the realm of possibility. We can be suspicious of people who claim to speak with God or for God. So what is God's answer to that? No more words. God just demonstrates his power. In turning the staff to a snake, in the healing of his leprous hand, in turning the waters of the Nile into blood, God shows his power over all creation and over all the gods of Egypt. This is who you are dealing with, Moses. You don't need to be afraid. God prepares him for how his visit with Pharaoh will go. Pharaoh indeed won't listen to him, but that won't stop the Israelites from leaving Egypt. It also turns out that Moses was right that the elders of Israel won't listen to him either and reject God too as they appeal to the Pharaoh and call themselves his servants. Just because God is with us doesn't mean everything will go swimmingly. But God encourages Moses and us too when he says, just wait. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand, he will let them go. Proceed, Moses. Get ready for the day when the I Am will reveal himself. But Moses has still further objections. Although they are getting a bit wimpy, no longer objecting that God is not known well enough, or his call to Moses not clear enough, or the contact with Pharaoh not effective enough, he points to himself. He is not worthy enough. He is not eloquent. Oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And disregarding the fact that Moses has held his own in this conversation, God responds with further self-revelation and asks a rhetorical question. Who gives speech to mortals? Is it not I, the Lord, 
Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. Do you hear a note of impatience here on the part of God? Now go, I am with you, just go. It's God who will deliver his people from Egypt, but he makes it clear that he will do so through the agency of Moses. It is Moses who is carrying the staff, not of his skill as a magician, but of the authority and power of God that is with him. God is sovereign. But we see what kind of a God he is working with the free will and the frailties and fears and self-doubts of his people. Moses will grow as a leader as the next 40 years unfold. But he and God will always work in conversation with each other. Revelation is not just information that God hands over to us but an invitation to trust in God and an expression of God's trust in us. And every revelation leads to fuller understanding, fuller trust, and new possibilities. And we see in the story of Moses that God sometimes reveals himself at human initiative. He responds to questions as openings to reveal more of the divine nature and our honesty about our own fears and doubts can allow God greater range in revealing himself. But Moses goes one more step and crosses a line. He makes God mad. He tells God he has a better plan. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. What happens when we make God mad? What will he do to Moses? Strike him dead? Send him back to his flocks? I imagine he thought that Moses would rise to the occasion. He is at best a disappointment. But what is God going to do? He clearly can't depend on Moses going to Pharaoh, even with him holding his hand all the way. So God, who works with human frailty and fears to fulfill his will, he goes to plan B. Okay, Moses, what about Aaron? He is fluent, and I've already got him coming out to meet you, but you will give him the words to speak. He will speak for you to the people. Now, don't forget the staff by which you will perform the signs. God's encounter with Moses is not to wow him with mysteries, but to call him to action. And it's no different for us. He calls us too to help him establish his kingdom on earth. He may not call us to save the nation or lead our church through the Red Sea, but he might well call us to check on our neighbors and encourage our friends. We may not be able to feed the hungry, but we can feed a hungry person. We are so fortunate that the salvation of the world is not laid on our shoulders, 
but God may well enlist us to minister to his children within our reach. We know it when we see it on a daily basis. We may make a phone call and hear a need. That is God's call to us. He is working through the needs of the world one person at a time by calling one person at a time. Each morning, we can pray, show me what you need from me today. Help me to be awake to the needs of those about me. Help me to see as you see the needs of those who cross my path and hear as you hear the voices of the oppressed and discouraged and tired. Let me be your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet. God works through us to answer prayers. When we hear God's call, too often our first response is, not me, Lord, I can't do this. There are so many people who can do it better. I have no eloquence. No one is going to listen to me. But when God hears all our insecurities and our self-doubts, he says to us, as he said to Moses, I will be with you. I, the creator of heaven and earth, will be with you. Jesus said to us, I will be with you always even to the end of the world. And how could we even get out of bed in the morning without that promise? Who would want to live a day outside the presence of God? Neither Moses nor you or I are commissioned to work alone. But whatever we do, we do with the promise that God is with us as he was with Moses, and through Moses, God worked to establish his kingdom on earth, the kingdom where all the nations of the earth will be blessed, just as Jesus is now establishing his kingdom when we hear him say, inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, you have done it unto me. And we find ourselves like Moses, on a journey. For him, a literal journey covering the miles between Egypt and Canaan. But for us, a movement towards God. Never measured, for God is always on the move, never stopping in a temple or building, but always leading us to greater understandings of what it means to be made in the image of God. God is present in the burning bush, making the ground holy ground. But God doesn't stay there forever. The God of Exodus is always on the move. He brings his people to the desert, not to leave them there, but to move them to the promised land. And as we live our lives in his service, we learn more and more about God and learn to recognize his voice. We may not have a burning bush, but we walk on holy ground whenever we hear and respond to his summons in as much. In as much as you have done it to the least of these, you have done it.